Psalm 119 in the text. And as I read the text, uh, I'm just going to read the first eight verses now, and then we're going to be all over the place, so just bear with me as we're going through this morning's text, a little different than what we normally do. Uh, And we're having communion at the end, so exciting times, glad you are here with us. Psalm 119, listen to the psalmist, it says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statues. Then I shall be be not, put, be, uh, not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Well, this morning I want to begin with an, a question. I want you to think of what comes to your mind, the first word that comes to your mind when you think about the Bible. It's an interesting question. There's probably mixed emotions as you think of this word, the Bible. Maybe in some sense you might say there's this this word of reverence that comes. After all, this is in the inherent word of God, the inspired text by the Holy Spirit that these men wrote. Maybe in another sense you would say powerful. It's a powerful text. As God has written his story of how he's redeeming his people back to himself. Then on the other sense... Maybe a word of of burden comes to mind. You felt the guilt that somebody else might have put upon you or you put upon yourself of not being able to read the text as much as you should. So there's this sense of guilt. It it hasn't really felt a joy to you, but it's felt more like homework. There's this, this responsibility that comes along with it and you have this mixed emotion that it feels more like schoolwork than anything else. This morning, I want to change our opinion of what we look at the Word of God. I want us to come in line with what the psalmist would say. He's passionate about this book. This book is his everything. So this morning, what we want to do is we we want to move away from burden and see this book as a delight. To, To not so much see this book as enslaving us or infringing upon our rights, but actually setting us free. A book that's not bringing this unnecessary guilt but it's leading us to our greatest joy. But the way I want to get there this morning is by beginning by a true story about a man that D.A. Carson met at Trinity Evangelical uh, uh, Seminary. This man, he, he grew up in kind of a hard neighborhood. He lived a hard life, and therefore his schoolwork kind of struggled because of that. High school, he didn't make good grades. Therefore, he couldn't get into college. He tried, but no college would accept him, so his the only where he would place he knew where else to go was the military. Joined the army, got involved in the army, but somehow got involved in the drug scene within the army at that time. And, and yet, in, in God's providence, he made it to this 82nd Airborne. As he's part of the 82nd Airborne, he's still doing drugs. In fact, he tells stories of jumping out of airplanes as he was high on L, uh, LSD. But yet there was a Bible he kept in his pocket. Gideon Bible, he never wrote, read it, but in a sense, he, was, he kept it kind of as a good luck charm. After all, if you're going to be jumping out of airplanes high on drugs, you probably need some good luck charms to, to be with you. But as you know, as you're jumping out of airplanes, it doesn't always go as planned. 
There's a lot of waiting period there. And sometimes he would get bored and he began to pick up this book and began to read it. First, it was hard for him to read. Difficult, he didn't understand it. But then he continued to read True Story. And, and as he noticed himself reading it, it almost like this book began to catch him. He read more and more and began to think that maybe he actually became a Christian during this thing. He went to the chaplain on base. He said, hey, I think I've become a Christian. The chaplain says, why do you think that? He says, well, I've been reading the Bible in my free time, and I think it's just kind of grabbed a hold of me. The chaplain said, I don't think that's how it works, and told him to read some catechisms. That didn't really work for him, but thankfully he got involved in a local church. Local church off base began to disciple him well, began to get him off of drugs, and he began to fall more in love with the Bible. Six months later, 82nd Airborne was kind of, uh, they, they began to, to find all the people that were doing drugs within the 82nd Airborne and selling drugs, and there was this bus that took place, and all these people began to be court-martialed, and thankfully he was off of drugs at this time, so he wasn't involved in it. Again, you're seeing God's providence over this man's life. This Bible is taking hold of his life, and, and after he gets out of the army, he decides he wants to go back to college, so he goes to this Christian college that accepted him. He goes to this Christian college, he, he graduates with high honors, and then he ends up at Trinity Seminary, and eventually he ends up in full-time ministry. And you're looking at this book who, who radically transformed this man's life. man who wanted nothing to do with God, now he becomes this pastor, and you're thinking, the question we ask is, what was the effect that this book had on his life? Was it infringing on his rights? What, was this book enslaving him or is actually setting him free? What, was this book making him less of a man or, or was it making him actually a true man, a new man, a transformed man? Was this a book a burden to him? Or did it too become his delight? Because it too led him to his greatest joy, God. See, in that light, it changes our opinion of how we look at this book. We see it in new light. We see it as the psalmist does, his, his passion, his delight, his love. So this morning, I want to look at the psalmist as he's, as he's writing Psalm 119. I want to ask the question, what is the psalmist passionate about? Why is he passionate about it? And then what is the effects that take hold of his life because of his passion for the scriptures? First of all, we see very clearly that this is an important text to the psalmist, it's an important text to all of Scripture as well, because as you're reading this book, one of the things we see, there's, this, this is the longest psalm found throughout the Psalms. Again, 176 verses. It's a long book, a long chapter within the Psalms. In fact, this is the longest chapter we see in all of Scripture. And yet, what is it written about? Scripture. It shows us the importance of Scripture. And one of the things we will notice we're walking our way through this psalm is that it is broken out into 22 different sections. This is going to be important because within those 22 sections, there's eight verses each in each section. And, and the writer, as he's writing the psalmist, he's writing it in this acrostic fashion, which means that there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and every 22 sections within uh, this, this psalm is written with a different letter. That Each section begins with a different letter and the eight verses that are within that section begin with that same letter. So imagine the skill that it took to write this psalm. 
Imagine the, the beauty that he's interweaving, kind of weaving throughout this psalm, and he's doing so so that we would help us memorize this psalm as well. Acrostic fashion that you just kind of walk through each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it helps you memorize the text. But notice, the first thing we notice is what this psalm is, the psalmist is passionate about. What, what is his delight? It is the word of God. This, this whole psalm centers on this book. He is passionate about it. In fact, notice all the, the verses. I'm going to read you a couple. It's kind of all over the place, so bear with me. Verse 47, the psalmist writes this, For I, found, uh, for I find delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 48, the very next verse, he writes, I, I will live my life with my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 20, uh, 97, verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It's the meditation all day long. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Verse 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Verse 163, he almost repeats what he just said earlier. I hate and, and, and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Do you see his passion for the word of God? It's almost overwhelming how passionate he is about this book. He is passionate about God's word. He's passionate about his commandments. He's passionate about God's promises. In fact, as you're reading this, one of the things we'll notice is that the psalmist is using eight different words interchangeably as he talks about the word of God. Sometimes he calls them commandments. Sometimes he calls them precepts. Sometimes he calls them promises. Sometimes he calls them statutes. Sometimes he comes and and calls them testimonies or decrees, or he calls it the, the word. And as you're working through each section, he, he uses no less than six descriptions of the law in each, or, or the word in each section. He's passionate about it. He loves this book. But the question we ask, why is he so passionate about the word of God? First thing is this, he's passionate about the word of God is because he the, the other alternative is just to live in this sense of not knowing about God, not knowing what pleases God, just coming up with people's opinions about God. And he says, no, I have the word of God. I, I have the truth. And therefore, because I have the truth, I don't have to guess what God is like. And I think we often forget the, the beauty of, of having God to close who he is in the scriptures. In fact, to kind of put us to understand how frustrating it must have been on the other end of things without having God's revelation, you're just left with opinion. So just for a second, I want you to imagine yourself in first century Corinth. Good illustration because I think it understands why we should fall and be passionate about this book. First century Corinth. They didn't believe in Revelation, so therefore there's this idea that they didn't know how many gods, so they would come up with hundreds of different gods. They come up with the idea of an unknown god because they just didn't want to miss anything because they didn't know for certain how many gods there were. They didn't know about what pleased these gods. 
Again, it all was opinion. How should we please them? The gods for them, they, they thought that they would kind of lie to them. The gods were fighting amongst themselves so they didn't know if, if a god was mad at them or it was just this ultimate divine war going on. They, they didn't know. So what their day literally looked like, it had, a, it had to be so confusing and frustrating and, and overwhelming and exhausting. Your day would start out, you'd pray to the god of travel, Hermes, so you do a sacrifice to him before you set out to your job. If your travel goes by sea, then you do another sacrifice to the god of, of the sea, was what Odys- uh, 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 Odysseus, or I believe. Uh, but you would do this other, this kind of another sacrifice, and and then again, if you were doing the god of work, you would do another sacrifice, and all these sacrifices, you didn't know if they would work. You didn't know if the gods were happy with you or they still upset with you. You were simply just confused, but the psalmist says, I'm never confused. I know exactly who my God is because he's revealed himself through the scriptures. I don't have to guess how many gods there are. He told me there's one God. So therefore, because there's one God, then he begins to close his character to us and we know what his character is like. He is He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That description of God is is stated eight different times throughout the Holy Scriptures. It's almost like God would know that we begin to doubt it, so he repeats it over and over again. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he doesn't have to guess about God's character because God has to close himself in this book. And not only does he disclose himself in this book, but, he, but we, we don't even have to guess how to get to heaven. For them, it, it's just a sense of uncertainty, even in religions today, how many doors do I have to knock on to, to be able to enter into the highest heavens? They don't know. But yet we've been disclosed because God has told us that salvation comes through Jesus Christ's faith in him alone. We don't have to worry about what our, our purpose or our mission here on life is all about. It's to glorify God and make disciples. See, the psalmist is so excited that, that God has disclosed himself to him that he doesn't have to guess. He doesn't have to be left with this idea of speculation. In verse 19, he says this, I'm a sojourner, a visitor on this earth. Hide not your commandments from me. And then he rejoices in the very next couple of verses about how thankful he is that God hasn't hide, hidden his commandments. He says, your testimonies are my delight. And he says, they are my counselors. Counselors. This word suggests that there's authority in this book. That's why later on in the passage in verse 105, he says it's this, this lamp unto his feet. He describes it as a light unto his path. It's the one who guides him. It's his counselor. It's his teacher. In a sense, what he's saying is we don't want to be left to other people's opinions and speculation. No, we turn back to this book because this is our ultimate and only authority. And yet so often... Especially in today's world, we see so many people now turning away from the authority of the Word of God, turning into their own speculations and opinions. And how scary that must be. Imagine you as the pilot. You're flying this plane. I was watching this video this week about this pilot that actually took place. His landing gear doesn't come down. And what are you going to do in that moment? 
You can turn to your, your sidekick there and ask him what his opinion should be. Turn to your passengers and say, hey, what do you guys speculate I should do? Or do you turn to the manual that the plane came with, the, the, the checklist of what you should do in case of an emergency? Do, do you turn to this book in which the, the person who made the very plane came up with a checklist just in this occasion to override the system so that your landing gear can come out? Why would you turn to opinion when, when, when there's life and death at stake? And the same thing is true of us. We have a book. The one who created us, who created the heavens and the earth, gave us his book to tell us what we should do in this life. And when there's eternity at stake, we, we don't want to be left to other people's opinions or their speculation of how we should get there. So the psalmist is saying, here, this is my book. It's my delight because it has revealed to me the pathway in which I should walk. Do you see what he's saying in my delight and why I'm so excited about this book? He's thankful that God has chosen to reveal himself. He's thankful he doesn't guess, or doesn't need to guess on what, what it takes to please God. God has to close what it looks like to love God. To love God is to obey his commandments. And he's given us his commandments in his word. So the first thing we see is why he's so passionate about this book is he's thankful that God has not left him in the dark, but has disclosed who he is to him. He's thankful that God has shown him the way for his purpose and his mission here on earth. He, he's thankful that God has given him a new identity and shown him what that identity looks like. He's thankful that God has shown him the pathway to eternity. He doesn't have to guess. doesn't have to... To, to wish that he did enough to make it into heaven. It's been told that Jesus Christ has done enough. First reason he's passionate, so God has closed himself. Second reason he's passionate about this book is because of his love for God himself. What, what he's literally saying here is it's, it's love for God who fuels his love for the scriptures. You see that? Imagine this. Imagine you have two types of, of writing going on or reading. Imagine you're in school back in your school days and you were assigned a certain book. And you read that book differently because it's assigned to you rather than a letter who was written to you by a loved one who's away. There's a major difference of how you read them, right? In one sense, the book who's assigned for you, you kind of hurry it through. You're not really paying attention to what you're reading. You just got to do it for the assignment. You got to make it to the end. So you read it, you're skipping some pages. A couple hours later, you've forgotten exactly what you've read. It was just an assignment. But how different that is when you're reading a letter from a loved one. And you read every word and you're caught up in them. You linger on every sentence. You read it and then you reread it. Why are you so in love with this letter? It's not the letter itself. But it's who wrote the letter that makes the letter important. This is what the psalmist is saying about the word of God. He is so passionate and so caught up in this book. is because the almighty king of kings has written him a letter. You see why he's so in love with it? Why he says it's my delight? Why he says that, that, that it's sweeter uh, than, than, than even honey? He says it's more valuable 
than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's a strong statement. But again, he is passionate about the word of God because he's passionate about his God. And if we're going to be truthful, so many times in our lives that we read it like an assignment. So many times that, that we hurry through the text. But the psalmist says, I, I don't want to do that. I want to linger on every word that my God has said to me. In fact, as you're watching this psalm take place, what we see is because he's passionate about his God, he's passionate about the word of God. But, but as he dives into the word of God, there's this reciprocal pattern that takes place. He finds himself falling more in love with God. So he, he's passionate about the book because his love for God, but then he reads the book, he falls more in love with God, then therefore it produces more love for his word. And that pattern continually goes on and on and on. And he lingers. And in fact, there's this word I want to concentrate. It's the word meditate. The psalmist uses it eight times throughout Psalm 119. Eight times alone, this word meditate comes about. And what the psalmist is saying is he wants us wants us to look at the word of God and begin to, again, just linger, constantly turning over God's word in our mind. The picture a lot of people use to kind of illustrate what meditate looks like is a cow kind of chewing on his cud, if you're familiar with livestock. But he chews on his cud throughout the day. He comes back up in his mouth. He chews some more. He swallows it. It comes back up. Kind of gross. But the, the imagery is, is important. That's what it looks like for us to, to meditate on God's word. We chew it and we constantly chew it on it throughout the day. We're having it turn over in our minds. We, 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 we pause and, and what we're asking is saying, hey, God, reveal yourself to me through your text. And as he's sitting there and meditating on it, he's, he's lingering again on every word. And again, so how, we, we, we almost do the exact opposite. How many, of, how many times we wake up and we, we're just hurried to get through it because we want to check it off our to-do list? And therefore, again, two hours later, you're like, I don't even know what I read that this morning. I, I fulfilled my quota of quiet time for the day, but I don't even know what I read. And the psalmist is saying, I, I don't want you to do that. He's saying, I want you to linger. I want you to, to think about it. I want you to, to, to ask deep questions of the text. In fact, that's what meditation is all about. It's asking deep questions. It's asking, okay, what does is, what is this text tell me about you, God? Well, what does this text tell me of how I should live in light of being your child? It's asking deep questions, constant questions, constantly turning over that text in your mind throughout the day. This is important for us to remember because this is what leads to transformation. See, if I'm just reading so quickly and not asking questions and not really thinking about application, transformation never comes. So, so the psalmist says, I, 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 I want you to meditate on it. And, and what this meditation gets is it gets us in the habit of thinking of God's word throughout the day. In fact, he says in verse 97, he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
It's kind of the idea of Psalm 1, verse 2, in which it says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law, he meditates on it day and night. So throughout our day, we're constantly bringing that scripture to our mind. That's why I think it's so important to actually have our quiet times in the morning. It gives us something to think about throughout that day. Or maybe for you, it's a Sunday night, and you take one passage, and you contemplate and think about that passage throughout the week. Maybe take one verse, two verses, you begin to memorize it so that when you're at a stoplight, what comes to your mind first? It's scripture. What did I study this morning? How does that affect me in this moment? When I'm sitting on the couch relaxing, what comes to my mind at first? It, it should be that verse or that scripture passage. I'm, I'm meditating on it throughout the day. I'm chewing and asking those hard questions. So that I begin to, to allow this text to, to, to transform me. Because the more we concentrate on scripture, the more it comes to our mind that what leads to transformation of action. In fact, it was Ronald Jensen, the president of International Christian Graduate University, he says this, when you sow a thought, you reap an action. When you, when you sow an action, you reap a habit. When you sow a habit, you reap a character, and when you sow a character, you reap a destiny. What he's really getting at is it's important what we put in our minds and what we think about. So, so one of the, the best parts about meditation is it's getting us throughout the day to think biblically. It's getting us throughout the day to, to really contemplate what the scriptures actually would ask of us. Because, because that, that's really one of our main goals at this church is, is to get us to think biblically about all things. So that we're beginning to conform our, the way we think into a Christian worldview. It's so necessary, right? We live in a day and age, again, where opinion kind of trumps things. And, and I'm getting to the point in my life and it's like, I, I don't want to hear your opinion. I want you to, to hear what God's word says about that topic. So that we're training you to, to really look through the world through a biblical framework and lens. And this is what we need more of. We need more people to think biblically about everything. More people to think biblically about how they interact with their spouse. How they interact with their children. How they interact with their coworkers, How they interact with their neighbors. We need more people to think biblically how they look at big world events. Cultural upbringings. Think biblically about politics. We, we, we need more people to think biblically about their own identity and purpose in their mission at work. To think biblically about how they go about and setting their morals with their life. Biblically about how they center their priorities about their family life and their own life. We need more people to think biblically about all things. In fact, that's what meditation applies it's getting us to, to, to really think about what a text would ask us to do. We need more people to look at this book and say, let this book be my counselor. So what meditation does is it gets us to think about this book throughout the day. It gets us to think biblically. But lastly, we, we got to pray in this meditation. Right? We, want, we want to be people who, who look at this book and, and we're not just doing our quiet time solo, but you're asking God to be able to be there, speak through you, or, or to, to, to be there to, to allow you to understand the text, allow your heart to be humble and soft enough to conform your life to the text, 
allowing his Holy Spirit to speak to you and allowing yourself to listen. In fact, what's so interesting as you're looking throughout this Psalm 119 is 15 times he uses the word help and he calls out for God to teach him. In essence, what he's saying is, I can't do this alone, God. In fact, we see it over and over again. He says it 15 times. Uh, in verse 124, he says, Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me, God, your statutes. Verse 173, he writes, Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. The psalmist understands he, he cannot change himself. So what he's asking the Holy Spirit to do is to mold, to shape his heart, to incline and stir his affections upon his big God. We can't look at this book and transform ourselves. So as we're meditating, we're actually calling God, hey God, conform this passage to my heart. Let, let, let this passage be true my, to, to myself. It's Justin Taylor, a writer for the Gospel Coalition, that kind of looks at even at this meditation of saying, maybe we, we even ask the, the, kind of, the Philippians kind of four questions to this, this passage. Remember Philippians 4.8? It's whatever is true, whatever is noble, excellent praiseworthy, think about such things. So you're saying, okay, in this passage, in this moment, what is true about this passage? What truth does God want me to see from this passage? How do I align my life to this truth? What is excellent and praiseworthy about this passage? God, help me praise you as I'm reading this text. Because so often we come to a text and it's hard to get through. Sometimes we find ourselves tired and exhausted and we're looking at it and we're like, I don't even know what this means. And you're kind of pushing yourself through and you're not really thinking about it. You're not, you're not inviting God in to be able to speak to you through it. You're just trying to make your way through. And, and, and what this does is it causes us to pause and think. Causes us to say, you are a big God, let me see you in a new light. So why is he passionate about God's word? It's his revelation, it doesn't lead to speculation. It's important for us to understand, again, without revelation, what are we just left with? We're just left to speculate. We, we don't want to be in that place. We want to turn back to the standard, God's word. Secondly, he says, I'm passionate about God's word because I'm passionate about God himself. Where does that lead him? It leads him to meditation, to, to linger on the words of God. And lastly, it leads him to understand that he is willing to stand on God's word and promises even when life tempts him not to. In fact, as you're reading this text, we understand something's going on in the psalmist's life. He's, he's being pursued. We're not told what is pursuing him. We're not told why they're pursuing him. But he's constantly calling out, for help against these people who are pursuing him. But as they're pursuing him, it's very clear that the psalmist wants us to understand that he's not moving away from God's word even when he's tempted to. Even in the midst of persecution, maybe, he's saying, no, I'm standing on this book and I'm not being moved. Why? Because this is God's word. Without this book, what am I left to? Nothing. This is everything I have. So he, he says, I'm not moving in the sense of even what Martin Luther would say, here I stand, I can not do otherwise. And you're watching this. Listen to all the verses he says that talk about his steadfastness to follow God's commands and not sway from God's word no matter what happens in his life. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Verse 31, I will cling to your testimonies, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, I will keep them to the end. 
Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place where I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and I shall not be put to shame. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Verse 87, they have almost made an end to me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray away from your precepts. And should that not be all our desire? That we too would have this high view of Scripture? That we too would follow this book no matter what, to have the resolve to obey it, to affirm it, and proclaim it, no matter what takes place in our lives. I don't know if you're familiar with Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers was a three-time president of the Southern Baptist Convention, president in the, early 70, uh, the, the late 70s, early 80s, then again in the late 80s as well. This time, the Southern Baptist Convention was divided, very much like it is today. But in that time, they were divided on, on a group of individuals who were trying to look at Scripture and saying, this is not God's inspired text. It's just a historical kind of re record of what the Jews were all about. And as soon as they went there with this text of saying it wasn't inspired, it wasn't the Word of God, then they went to the idea of let's take all the miraculous supernatural out of this book. Then they went to the idea that, that it's not really sin that separates us from God. We're not really separated from God at all. The slow fade begins with taking and looking at this text not as the inspired word of God. Well, Adrian Rogers was on the other side of things and saying, no, we're going to believe in this book that this is inspired text. That Yes, the, the Holy Spirit was in influencing men as they wrote. That yes, this is the very word of God. But yet he's put on this strange committee that called the Peace Committee. The whole idea was to, to make sure the Southern Baptist Convention didn't split at that time. So here he is on the peace committee, and he's trying to bring peace to both sides. Well, as you can imagine, the debate wasn't really going anywhere. So one of the lawyers on the other side that was trying to say, this isn't the word of God, came up to Adrian Rogers and said, hey, we're frustrated with you, Adrian. You have to compromise, or we will never be together. As he came up to Adrian Rogers, listen to how Adrian Rogers responds to this. He says, I'm willing to compromise about many things, but not the word of God. So as far as getting together is concerned, we don't have to get together. The Southern Baptist Convention as it is, it doesn't have to survive. He says, I, I don't even have to be the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. I, I don't even have to be loved by people. But what he says is, I will not compromise on the word of God. What Adrian Rogers is really saying is exactly what the psalmist is saying. This is my delight. This is my counselor. This is my light to my path. This is the only authority, God's word, that is going to speak into my life. So I am not going to be moved or swayed away from this book. Is that your heart? As you, as you read this book, you begin to see yourself delighting in it more and more as you fall more in love with your God. God, I'm thankful I'm thankful that we have 
your book. A story written to us that we wouldn't be lost, but that we would we'd be told about a God who pursues us. Again, I'm reminded of, of Martin Luther's words talking about your scripture that is alive. That the word almost feels like it has hands because it grabs hold of us. It, it has feet because it pursues us. It's alive because it transforms us. So God, as we partake in this communion this morning, we are reminded of the great gift that you've given us. You've given us salvation through the great work of your son dying upon the cross for our sins. That through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we have been given the great gift that we get this great exchange. We hand over our sin and you, you clothe us with your righteousness. And what a gift that is. So God, I pray as we sing these last songs together that we would be reminded of the family of God, what a gift it is to have family. What a gift it is to join together on a Sunday morning and feel the freedom to sing praises unto your name. Understand in a room this size, there's many of us that, that need help stirring our affections upon you. So God, this morning, would you give us great joy in you? Those who are struggling, lift their eyes to see the greatness of who you are. Those who don't know you, let them see you this morning and be found. We pray these things in your son's name.